Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week's show is The Next Energy Economy, Grassroots Strategies to Mitigate Global Climate Change and How We Move Ahead. The speaker today is Winona LaDuc. She's a Native American writer and activist who focuses on human rights, the environment, and sustainable development. She's a graduate of Harvard and Antioch Universities and was a Green Party vice presidential candidate in 1996 and 2000. LaDuc will discuss her activism and how to make the transition from fossil fuels to sustainable options. This program was recorded in the Wendy Williamson Auditorium at the University of Alaska Anchorage on November 9th. Here's LaDuc. Hi there. How are you all? my relatives. I'm really thankful to be here tonight. And uh, thankful to the people, Oma'a, king of this land, for having me here. And it's been a very great pleasure and a privilege to be up here in your territory. Just quickly, I'm just going to give you a little bit of where I'm from. Gawawi Egamag means round lake. I live in the middle of the White Earth Reservation, the headwaters of the Red River. I also live near the headwaters of the Mississippi River. You know, I always point out, and I, I pointed out again tonight, that as an undergraduate at Harvard University, if you wanted to study the art, uh, the fine arts, uh, you're, you know, if you wanted to study the art of Europe, you went to the fine arts department. And if you wanted to study indigenous art, you went to anthropology. And so I say that because that is the way it is in a lot of these universities. There's a valuation of knowledge which is based on a Eurocentric model. And I think it is possible that we, we must come to terms with the fact that it is possible that the, the paradigm which created the problems we are dealing with today may not have the solutions to those problems. It may be important for us to come to put our minds together to come to solutions. And so that is some of the, the, the purpose of this talk tonight, is to say that you know, we, we must, must learn from many places. So I want to talk about making America great again, <laughs> just for a moment here. And so this is my idea of when America was great, when there were 8,000 varieties of corn. That's when America was great, tremendous agro-biodiversity. And that corn was not uh, created by guys in white suits from Monsanto. That corn was created by women, largely women, of the Western Hemisphere because corn itself does not exist in nature as corn. It exists as teosinte, which is a plant that looks a little bit more like wheat than corn. But the breeding, the intricate care and love of that plant you know, was done by many years of seed selection until there were 8,000 varieties. And, and a lot of the, the, those who did that work were actually women because women are the best seed collectors because we are often the ones that are the harvesting plus we are cooking and so you know how it will taste and you know how it will save. And so I want to just reaffirm that the, you know, indigenous knowledge systems and the, and the, and the widespread beauty of that knowledge. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about more about that later, but tremendous agrobiodiversity. Uh, America was great when there was 50 million buffalo. That's when America was great. And those buffalo, single largest migratory herd in the world, and those buffalo spanned a territory that used to have uh, 250 different species of grass. Tremendous biodiversity, and upon that grass, the buffalo would live without any fossil fuels. And so I think about that and, I, and the times when the sky would blacken would blacken with the birds that would pass overhead. And when all of our streams and rivers and our ocean were full of fish. Our time when all our waters were clean. And I am reminded of those times, and in many places we still have some of those, those times. Some of those places are here in Alaska. Some of those places are where I live. 
And on a worldwide scale, the fact is, is that most of the world's biodiversity exists where indigenous people exist. That is the remaining biodiversity of the world. And so, you know, as I reflect on this and when America was great, I ask you all to join with me and, make, and, and to reaffirm that we do not forget this. Because in this America, in this America, it is true that we have a historic amnesia in this country, in part due to the transience of America and in part due to the selections of our mind and the, and the media. I don't have historic amnesia nor do I have ecological amnesia. I remember that we had these things, and I ask you to re remember with me. My commitment is to do my best to keep America great. My commitment is to do my best to keep, keep my covenant. So to speak a little bit about the problems that exist, I just give a short summary, but I think in many ways this exemplifies our problem. The conflict between worldviews, and I don't want to pretend you know, that it is easily reconciled, because I think that that is a misnomer. You know, in, in our Anishinaabek prophecies, it is said that we refer to these times, we were told by our prophets long ago, that our people would, would go through many times, those times were called fires. You know, they refer to the times of our transition, refer to the times when our people would disappear. We had no word for smallpox. You know, our people had no idea what was coming our way. They talked about when our things would disappear. We had no idea that the this, this Smithsonian, that Peabody Museum, would haul off entire villages from Alaska. You know, we had no idea. They talked about the great slumber, which could have been the residential schools and the boarding schools. And they talked about this time when our people would awaken and we would remember who we were. They called that the time of the sixth fire. When we would start to go and find our things, we would find our sacred items that were kept in museums, and we would find and remember our languages. We would remember our ceremonies, and we would become these people who were awake again. They were conscious. They were coherent people. And then they say these people will be born in the time of the seventh fire, and those people, they say, they call them the Ashki Anishinaabeg, the new people. That's what our prophet said. And then they said that those Ashki Anishinaabeg, those people would have a choice between two mikana, two paths, and one path they said was well-worn, but it was scorched. And the other path they saw was not well-worn, and it was green. And it would be our choice upon which path to embark. And that's what our prophet said to us a very, very long time ago. And what I'm pretty sure of is that that moment that, that they were discussing is now. And that that prophecy was not just about us. It was a prophecy about where we are in North America, whether, where we are in Alaska, where we are in the world. This moment in time, when we look at the IC, you know, IPCC's discussion on climate change, when we look at this, the state of militarization of Alaska and everywhere else, and this moment we have where we can say which path upon which we are gonna embark. So let me talk just briefly about the scorched path, and you do not need too much of a lecture, you know? I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, to the south, to the, to the west, the, the world is on fire. The most of the West Coast has been on fire this past year. To the north, your ice is melting and your waters rise. To the south, hurricanes, including Hurricane Michael, third largest storm, most, most the worst hurricane, third worst hurricane on record, on record this year, the 12th major storm of the year. You know, so these I would refer to, or my partner Don refers to these as catastrophes of biblical proportions and they surround us. 
You know, that is the time that we are in. You know, they say by 2020, we will be spending 20% of world GDP on climate change related disasters. That is a huge amount of liability associated with oil companies who operate in Alaska. I'm not exactly sure who is going to pay for this. 20% of world climate, you know, world expenses, GDP. But that is what we are looking at, you know, in terms of the financial liabilities that, these, that the scorched path has led us upon. And then I tell you just a little bit of my story. So I'm a pipeline fighter. You know, by my, you know, my work or my, you know, I'm, I'm actually a farmer who likes to write. But for the past six years, I've been fighting big pipelines. And, and you know, that is in part how we are related. In uh, 2013, they announced a big pipeline project. That pipeline was called the Sandpiper. They being the Enbridge Corporation, the third largest corporation in Canada and the largest pipeline corporation. Now my reservation is this white earth reservation. We're sitting there in the middle of northern Minnesota with these other reservations and we don't have any oil. We're pretty much like minding our own beeswax, <laughs> taking care of our wild rice, growing our cool vegetables, rebuilding our local economy, our local food system, doing some renewable energy work. And they announced this pipeline proposal and I, I think that's a really bad idea because that's not gonna work out for us. And so, uh, you know, we see this proposal, and what we have here is a situation that you have in Alaska, too, is we have six old pipelines that are already across our territory to carry Canadian oil to markets. And then we have uh, a new ones proposed. And so we went out and we, we started doing some organizing work. You know, we educate our own people because I believe that uh, democracy should involve informed citizens. I believe you should know what is happening, and you should have a choice about it. I believe that you should know what the experts say and what they know and what they do not know. And so we did a lot of organizing. We went out and talked to our own, you know, own community and then, I was, you know, and then I was looking at our situation and we live in a place where there are a lot of non-native people that live very close to us. They have lake homes on those 10,000 lakes in northern Minnesota. And so we went out and did some work and, and you know, we figured if we could get the Norwegians mad, <laughs> that'd be a good thing because they're a plucky bunch. You know, and so we went out and, uh, and, built, and, and started talking to them, you know, talking to other people. We built a multiracial alliance of people who want our water, want to protect our water, you know, because we have a lot of water in our territory, like you do here. And so in that multiracial alliance, we uh, filed, you know, we, we went to every he regulatory hearing. You know, so we, we did everything in the legal system. And then we f the lawsuit was filed by a community group which forced an environmental impact statement on that proposed pipeline. The pipeline was called the Sandpiper, 640,000 barrels a day of, of fracked oil from North Dakota. And then the Enbridge Corporation. You know, I, I feel like you shouldn't have to force your government to do an, an EIS. You understand what I'm saying? A 640,000 barrel a day pipeline, we felt like they should do that, state of Minnesota. And we, we, we had to court order them, and then they appealed that, and then the appeals court ordered them to do that. And I'm just saying that because I'd actually like a system that works. I feel like as native people, quite frankly, they shoved the system down our throat for 200 years. And they said, this is a system that works. And so I want it to work. You know, I want the, I want the government to do what the government said it was gonna do. And uh, when they, we filed that lawsuit, very shortly thereafter, the Enbridge Corporation threw their hands up and announced the cancellation of the Sandpiper. <laughs> Three-year battle. Took a lot of, took a lot ceremony lot but I say that and I say that you know we defeated them in this pipeline but that same corporation went out to North Dakota and purchased 28% of the Dakota access pipeline shoring up the foundations of what was a shaky shaky 
financial deal with Energy Transfer Partners, and they financed the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so we followed them out there. I'm a veteran of Standing Rock. My organization is a veteran of Standing Rock. We spent many, many months out there and, and lived out there. And when we went out there, this is what we found. We found that the rights of corporations supersede the rights of humans. We found that people's rights are being significantly violated. This woman sprayed with some kind of unknown substance by the military. The 1,300 officers and the $38 million spent and so what I want to point out is that this is, a bit, this is in my mind, a, a crisis in civil society when your military equipment is used on your own people. And to me, as I said, I'd really want to have a democracy that works where you do not get shot. But this is what it looks like when you're at Standing Rock and they are shooting water at you and flame retardant in the middle of the night on a bridge in sub-freezing sub temperatures. It is not easy to, ma to maintain a camp of that size when you're barricaded in. You have surveillance all around, you're being oversprayed, watched, and military is, is on the north side. Helicopters every day, that is right. I bet there's some Standing Rock veterans in here. There you go. Give them a hand. And I know the rest of you supported a lot of us too, so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for that. But I want to point out that it's, you know, this is a pretty remarkable moment. I refer to this as a Selma moment. A Selma moment for the environmental movement for the indigenous movement, a moment when we said, you know, this is what we are made of. You know, we are strong. We're not going anywhere. This is who we are. We are water protectors. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is The Next Energy Economy, Grassroots Strategies to Mitigate Global Climate Change and How We Move Ahead with Native American writer and activist Winona LaDuke. You know, and I don't have an answer to this, but what I know is, is that I want to see more of this happen in this country. And if any of you actually read the paper in the past couple of days, aside from the election results, did you notice that the judge overturned the rulings on the KXL pipeline and said that, in fact, that the, it said, in fact, that the Trump administration had not given an adequate reason for overturning all of the decisions that the Obama administration had, had done. And so I'm hopeful for that. And I just want to say kind of in the bigger picture, for those of you who, are, who you know, are looking at some of this situation, two years ago, there were five pipelines proposed for, to get Canadian oil to market. There were five of them, five of them. One was called Energy East. That was a pipeline from Alberta to New Brunswick that did not receive approval by the National Energy Board. A second was called the Gateway. Northern Gateway Pipeline, an Enbridge Pipeline to the Pacific Northwest from Alberta, did not get approval by the National Energy Board. Third, called the Keystone XL. That is what just happened to the Keystone XL. Fourth pipeline is called the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And if some of you watched that about two months ago, it's a Canadian pipeline. What happened is, is that the, uh, the appeal, the federal court in Canada, the appeals court ruled that the permits were null and void because they had not consulted with First Nations. That was, of course, <laughs> the same day as Pierre, uh, as Pierre, excuse me, Justin Trudeau purchased the pipeline from Kinder Morgan, a Canadian, a, a, a uh, Texas-based pipeline corporation. Fifth pipeline, remaining pipeline is a pipeline called Line 3. We will talk about that later, but that is what I face. It's Line 3. 
the second coming of Enbridge. So I tell you this story because it is a complicated terrain, and in the middle of it are citizens like myself who are water protectors, who are standing against every pipeline. And so as I come to you in Alaska, and we talk about issues of climate change, I want to say that my job is to try to keep more climate change from coming your way as well. You know, I'm looking down the barrel of a pipeline which is the equivalent of 50 new coal-fired power plants. And you do not need them and I do not need them. And so our battles are related. These are also the battles of how we treat each other. This is what it looks like in North Dakota. This is a billboard because everyone here knows that there's a relationship between extractive industries and abusive women. And this is also North Dakota. I show this picture because this is a picture of um, there's a little town in North Dakota called Leith. Have any of you seen this movie called Welcome to Leith? It's an interesting movie about North Dakota. What happened is, is that a lot of people left North Dakota because it's kind of cold and mean. <laughs> and we call it the Deep North. <laughs> they left. And when they left, new people moved in, and some of the people that moved in were Nazis. They bought this little town called Leith. Leith, North Dakota and they declared a little Nazi community. And so uh, nobody liked that in North Dakota. Native people didn't like it, a lot of North Dakotans didn't like it either. So one day, these women, I've known these women since I was a young girl. The one on the, on the far uh, right is Phyllis Young, and that's uh, Madonna Thunderhawk, and that's Maple Ann Chasing Hawk, and I don't know who this sister is, but those three women, I used to work for them when I was 18 years old, and they were really scary. And they're still really scary because what those three women, those three Lakota grandmothers, is they went and they stole the Nazi flag of the town of Leith. <laughs> and then they burned the Nazi flag of the town of Leith. <laughs> so, you know, I just give you a little background on Scorch Path. You know, what happens is at a certain point, a certain point when, you know, I consumed a good portion of the world's oil reserves, you know, in my lifetime. I had a pretty good time. Did you all have a pretty good time using all that oil? I consumed like half the world's known oil reserves in my lifetime, you know? I had a really good time. I was jetting around and going here and there, eating those avocados. <laughs> I especially like buying that Fiji water. It's from the furthest part of the planet. That's what a fossil fuel economy looks like, right? Just import everything from anywhere. Anyway, in doing that, I ended up in a situation where we're all together, which is that we used all the easy oil. Anything that's left is really hard to get. What I mean by really hard to get is uh, you got to either, you know, frack it like this, right? You know what I'm saying? Go 20,000 feet under the ocean and hope that's going to work out for you until you get something like the deep water horizon. Or uh, maybe you, you know, want to blow off the top of some mountaintops in Appalachia. Or maybe you want to do the tar sands. My point is, is that Alaska and the rest of the world, we've reached this era which is known as extreme extraction, where everything that's left is really hard to get. It's still there. We got to do really crazy stuff to get it. And to me, it reminds me a lot of an addict. You know, you, you just can't quit. And so it might be kind of hard to get, but you get more and more crazy in your behavior to get it, right? And I don't know if any of you have any addicts in your family, but I have a few. And they're kind of a drag, you know, to hang out with. You know what I'm saying? They rationalize their behavior. They make up stuff. They lie. It's always your fault, right? 
Any of you have this experience? And so then you end up in a situation where I feel like this is where we are. You know, as a society, we end up being the people that, that uh, do a lot of bad things and rationalize it. And so at this point, I feel like we have an opportunity to make a choice to not do that any longer. To quit with our addictions and to move. So that's this story. So this is me about a month ago in my first arrest on the Line 3 battle. Enbridge has announced a, that they want to put a new pipeline in, same route that we fought off last time, and it's called Line 3. I mentioned it before. Single largest tar sands pipeline, the only one remaining standing. 915,000 barrels a day, equivalent to 50 new coal-fired power plants. Because we uh, experienced Standing Rock when the state of Minnesota announced that they would issue a permit for this pipeline and then turned to the Enbridge Corporation and said to the Enbridge Corporation that was sitting in the room at the Public Utilities Commission, the commissioner turned to Enbridge and said, will you pay for the police if we put in this pipeline? And Enbridge said, yes, they would. We feel that that's a big, pretty big problem when a Canadian corporation finances your police to put in a pipeline for a Canadian corporation. This is, the, this is where civil society goes awry. And so, um, as they begin militarizing the North in their attempt to put in this pipeline, I, I got arrested. For those of you who have not been arrested recently, my suggestion to you is to get arrested with a lot of church people. That's what I did. I got arrested with church people. <laughs> the, the one native man who was going to get arrested didn't want to get arrested because most native men don't get out of that jail. <laughs> but I got arrested with these church people and I was really happy about it, as you see, because it took me a long time to get arrested. Four hours. They didn't want to arrest us, really, because I had all the church people. If it had just been some native women, they probably would have arrested us right away, but it was a bunch of church people. So they kept saying, okay, we're going to come in about an hour. About an hour, can you please move? Then they'd be like, no, okay, half hour from now. Okay, no, wait, can we give you another 10 minutes? Can you please move? And then finally they arrest. So this is me. I'm happy to go home. And if anybody has not been arrested, my other suggestion that I, that I pass out openly now is if you plan on standing on the line for a long time, before, you know, and you don't know when they're going to arrest you because you have to put your body on the line, you should wear Depends. <laughs> Keep that in mind. You can stay a really long time if you have it depends. Okay? Just, this is just passing out this information because you might need this. You might need this. Anyway, that's the scorched path. I'm going to talk about where we are going. I refer to this as the sitting bull plan. And the reason I do that is because, quite simply, the Trump plan will get us nowhere. But besides that, sitting bull was one of our greatest political leaders, and what sitting bull said is let us put our minds together to see what kind of future we can make for our children. And this future will take all of our minds. This will take us all putting our prayers and our hearts together to make something that is beautiful. That's what's going to take. That's what's going to take is, some, is something that is that, that, that is that tremendous and that is that beautiful. So I'm going to talk about my experience with the transition. This is my community. This is our wild rice. We have harvested our wild rice on that lake for 10,000 years. Same lake. That's what a sustainable economy looks like. 
If you take care of your land, your subsistence economy feeds you. And you are people who still have a subsistence economy in this territory. So to me, you know, the challenges are how you rebuild your economy so it is in relationship to the earth, not in relationship to that which you have created, but in relationship to the earth. You know, I, I, uh, I also speak about rebuilding our local food systems. Now, you know, I don't know a lot about Alaskan agriculture, but I know you can grow really big vegetables. <laughs> That's right, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not like you can't grow really cool stuff. So this is what I grow. You know, I don't know what you can grow here, but I'm a corn grower. And I talk about this because um, when I was a young woman I was at, uh, at Harvard, my father came to see me. He was a pretty much old school guy. You know, he went to school at the eighth grade. And he came to see me and he said, uh, Winona, you're a really smart young woman, but I don't want to hear your philosophy if you can't grow corn. And so I think about that because how do we feed ourselves? You know, a lot of people, they just shop. A lot of kids don't even know how to cook. They know how to reheat. You know. So I became a corn grower. And, uh, you know, first time I grew this variety, this, I grow this variety, it's called uh, Bear Island Flint. It's a corn variety that was developed in our territory in northern Minnesota on an island in the middle of, of a lake on the Leech Lake Reservation. And that variety, I grew it out and I thought it failed because it was, seemed to be, you know, it was only about this tall. I thought it was supposed to be really big and it's about that tall. And I looked at my corn and it still had ears on it. And what I realized is that it didn't need to be tall, it just needed to put on an ear. And because when it put on an ear, that's all you needed for it to eat. But because it wasn't so tall, it didn't spend all its energy getting tall. And then when the big, you know, the, 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 you know, the freezing came, you know, and the droughts came different times, my corn survived that. My corn survived that. And when the big winds came with climate change, they knocked over those Monsanto fields, but my corn stood. And so what my interest is, is primarily, is what you grow in a time of climate change, what you're going to grow. And so what I've found is that, you know, the vast majority of the world's food is actually not grown by Monsanto and Syngenta. The vast majority of the world's food is grown by people like me. Rural farmers grow the vast majority of the world's food. The vast majority of the world's food varieties are held by indigenous peoples and, and peasants. And the thing about varieties in a time of climate change, which is something the Irish potato famine should have taught us, is that what you want is agrobiodiversity. You want varieties that adapt themselves, that are strong and that know the land. And so as you know, the corn that I grow, this is another corn. This is a Pawnee Eagle corn. That's cool looking, huh? An eagle on each kernel. An eagle on each kernel. One of the things about corn is, is that corn is a, you know, some days I'm, I'm not very fond of humans. <laughs> I, you know, I think some of you know what I mean. I'm just like, we're just jerks. <laughs> and then I look at corn and I remember that corn does not exist without humans. We can be beautiful. We can be beautiful. You know, we make, we make it beautiful. 
This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is The Next Energy Economy, Grassroots Strategies to Mitigate Global Climate Change and How We Move Ahead. The speaker today is Winona LaDuc. She's a Native American writer and activist who focuses on human rights, the environment, and sustainable development. She's discussing her activism and how to make the transition from fossil fuels to sustainable options. We continue with LaDuc. So we grow cool corn. We worked on this solar project at Navajo. This is at Navajo Tribal College in Shiprock. 25 kilowatts of solar. What we did is we took some of the sulfur dioxide set aside money that had been in an escrow account from the closure of the Mojave Generating Station, which is a coal-fired power plant. That coal-fired power plant was owned by Southern California Edison. And when Southern California Edison, being California, decided to move much you know, away from a lot of fossil fuels and more towards renewables and also to cut the CO2 of their aging generators, they set up an escrow account that they put the money in before the closure. And some of that money is what we use to finance this. Then we raise some other money, you know, from different sources. But I say this, and a little of what I'm talking about today here is, my theory is, is that if we could do this, anybody could do it. You know, because the place where I come from is not a particular, you know, place that is particularly highly regarded with a lot of, you know, financial resources or support by major corporations. And this is a new project at Navajo. Canta Solar of 13,000 households can be supported by this. This is on the Navajo Nation. And this is in my own community. A little bit about what we do for our transition economy. And this is a snapshot from a film. The film is called The Seventh Fire. It's kind of a bleak moment in my village. Now make no mistake, I live you know, on a lake near this village with a solar panel. But this is the village that many of my grandchildren live in. My daughter lives in this village. So this is a from a film called The Seventh Fire, which is a poorly named film. But they shot this moment, and this exists, you know, in my community. So the film is kind of a, I kind of call it poverty porn. You know, it's a film about the epidemic of opioids in my village. And they took this snapshot of the brutalness, you know, the brutality. And we didn't really like the film when it came out because it showed us as pretty ugly. You know, and so my community, we decided to try to do some things to, to change how we were looked at. You know, and so uh, that's what we started with. Started painting our houses. Started painting our houses in our tribal housing project. We've painted seven of them so far. I have this theory that, you know, if you, live in, if you feel like you live in an ugly place, you might not feel as good as your, about yourself as if you live in a beautiful place, right? There's this story. This is my friend, Melina Lubacon. She's a young woman from a um, Cree village in the middle of what's known as the tar sands. And um, she's been fighting that tar sands her whole life. You know, kind of, uh, kind of like my friend Sarah James, who I've seen here, whole life. You know, a lot of respect for Sarah James. Well, this woman fighting that tar sands her whole life, she lived in a village it's like an Alaskan native village. They had a diesel generator to power their health clinic in the middle of the tar sands, you know? And uh, so she was in her master's program at the University of Victoria, and she wrote her master's thesis, and her master's thesis was on putting solar up for her village to power her health clinic. 
That was her master's thesis. But her master's thesis wasn't just about how to do it. Her master's thesis was doing it. And so she put up 20 kilowatts of solar to power her health clinic in her village. She raised the money from individual donors, leveraged, you know, just the creativity and, and persistence of a young woman. You know, and I think about that because a lot of people, you know, write their master's dissertations, but they just write a master's dissertation. You know, so she's just remarkable. And I was inspired by her. So in my village, we put up 20 kilowatts too. That's my pine point. Uh, that's behind my tribal school. I was like, look, Melina, I'm trying to do the same thing. Don't look quite as cool, but it's cool, it works. And then uh, we decided to do this in my village. So this is solar thermal. I don't know if any of you have that up here, or if it work up here at all. Probably work for some of the year. And so the south-facing wall of this house, um, the south-facing wall of this house has this panel installed on it, and that panel, it, it's uh, glass inside, and when it gets warm inside that, this, this panel, then it turns on the, the thermostat. When it hits 90, it turns on a blower fan and blows hot air into the house. So it's a simple technology that can save about 15 to 20% of your heating bill. And so I say this because uh, my community is super cold, but it's sunny. And so we started installing these on the houses in my community. And then um, this year, we're just completing building a manufacturing facility in the same village to build these panels, to put them up on tribal housing and non-tribal housing throughout the region. And so that's our plan. And um, then this is our plan. This is what a microgrid looks like. This is the Leech Lake microgrid plan. They have a set of uh, five solar gardens on their reservation. And their goal is to build a microgrid to join those to build an integrated tribally owned energy system. We are looking to do the same thing in my tribe, in my community, which is one reservation over, and we are planning to do 200 kilowatts of solar it is not the end, but it is the beginning of tribal energy self-determination in my region. And so I say this to you for a couple of reasons. It's like one, you know, my friend Bob Goff, he passed away here a few years ago. But Bob Goff was a, a great thinker, one of my board members at Honor the Earth. And he used to say, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. You're either at the table or you are on the menu. And that's pretty much the case across the board. You know, I'm someone that, that you know, I, I do not want someone else determining my future. I don't have a lot of experience with them making good decisions. So I feel like we should be at the table. And in fact, as I was, they, we were discussing this in a, in a workshop earlier today, we should set the table. <laughs> and we should figure out what kind of cool, slow food we should eat at the table, right? Because if we want to build the next economy, we have to dream it. You know, we have to articulate it. Now, people say that you, cannot, that you cannot meet present demand with renewable energy. How many of you have heard that? You know, and so what I want to say is, is that why would you want to meet present demand? I say that because 57% of the energy in the United States is, is wasted between point of origin and point of consumption.
whether it is inefficient systems, inefficient infrastructure, you know, poor planning, hemorrhaging, <laughs> power lines. 57% of the energy is wasted between point of energy and point of consumption. So a smart society would try to evolve and produce less energy because you were efficient. And I give you the best example of that, which is perhaps the combustion engine in the vehicles that we all drove here in. So I say that because I, like many of you, or maybe you do not, I have trucks. You know, and I drive, I drive an SUV. And I think, you know, because I live on a dirt road in the middle of an icy region. I think you know my story. And so having said that, you know, the thing that I find amazing is that, you know, the average combustion engine is 16% efficient. It's 16% efficient. Every part that moves in that engine takes more energy. And in that process, it becomes less and less efficient. It's 16% efficient, a combustion engine. But an electric engine, an electric engine is 65% efficient. It's 65% efficient, like a Tesla. So the question I ask myself and to all of you is why would you want to continue with a 16% efficient engine when you could move to an electric engine? But more than that, why would you not want to spend your time trying to figure out how to relocalize your economy so you don't have to transport a bunch of stuff in anyway? So as I said at the beginning, you know, this requires a plan. I refer to it as a sitting bull plan, but it is a structural adjustment to the economy in North America and a relocalization. Now, how I see that working is something like this. Now, this is us. We call it lighting the eighth fire. As I kind of began tonight to talk about this transition, I'm a hemp farmer. I grow fiber hemp with my partner, Don. We are in our third year of growing hemp with a state of Minnesota permit. And my interest is in fiber hemp. And I'm interested in fiber hemp because we used to make most of our clothing out of hemp till it was made illegal. In fact, we made most of our things out of hemp. I give you the example that the word canvas, the word canvas comes from the word cannabis, which is the origins of the same for hemp. In fact, the state of Minnesota used to have 11 hemp mills where we grew all our own clothes and we grew all our own economy. And so in this moment that we are in, you know, we find that we are in a textile economy in North America where we don't grow anything here anymore to start with. Cotton is highly energy intensive and highly water intensive. 24% of the pesticides used in agriculture are used on cotton. And an average t-shirt and jeans is about 5,000 gallons of water. That doesn't really make a lot of sense in an era where we are water scarce. Hemp is three times the tensile strength of cotton. And you know, in this moment we are in, in this country we, do no, we no longer mill or make textiles. We offshored that to China and Pakistan and India in the 1990s. The textile mills were stilled in the eastern part of the United States. And so we have become a country that doesn't actually produce much. We import it. And a globalized economy is predicated on endless access to fossil fuels. 
And so what is necessary is the relocalization of our economies. And the relocalization of those economies must include many elements, whether it is food, or whether it is energy, whether it is textiles, or whether it is housing, or whether it is health. Those are all elements that must be relocalized in order to transition. So this is me, this looks like from the 60s, doesn't it? This is the day after I heard, uh, I got a call from the tribe, tribal government who said that the neighbor had complained about my weeds. <laughs> and I went to my garden and my hemp field and I discovered that I had eight foot tall weed plants. I said, oh, those, my, uh, my noxious weeds, look at those. This is some of our foods that we grow, our cool purple potatoes, our CBDs, that is CBD hemp, <laughs> our tomatoes. This is a guy named Will Allen. For many years, he ran a project called Growing Power in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And in that project, he had a number of greenhouses in downtown, downtown Milwaukee, and he grew a million pounds of food on three acres. So I tell you that because if I was gonna try to relocalize some food in Alaska, I'd get some greenhouses and get going. You know, and if they can do this in, in Milwaukee, I feel like a lot of this could equally be done in Alaska. Now that is what a local job economy looks like, is when you rebuild your agriculture systems, when you rebuild your energy systems, when you rebuild you know, your housing. And as I think about where it is we are going and how we are gonna get there, there's really not any easy answer. You know, I could give you a lot of technical aspects of how many BTUs and how many gigawatts of power you need. But a lot of that, you are a smart bunch up here in Alaska. You got uh, some dark darkness coming. You could stay inside and think about these things. <laughs> huh? Yeah, I mean, get outside, do that. You know, and remember, you know, that, that change is inevitable. It's a question of who controls the change. Remember that the Stone Age did not end because they ran out of stones. The fossil fuel era will end before they run out of fossil fuels. It is incumbent upon us to be the people that make that change. You know, we are the ones that have the opportunity to do really cool things, like create an economy that looks something like maybe Germany, where they get a good percentage of their energy from renewables. No time like the present to make these transitions. So how we do that? you know, as we put our minds and hearts together to make the change. This is a butterfly from my hemp garden, a monarch. And I put this picture up here to remember a bit of a story, which is that, you know, a butterfly is not like other creatures, and that when it transforms into a butterfly, something really amazing happens. You know, the caterpillar goes into that chrysalis, and when it goes in that chrysalis, you know, it, uh, it liquefies to become a new being. It's not like a moth. A butterfly does an entirely different thing. And what happens is that there's these cells that come, and these cells that, are, that emerge, and those cells are called imago cells. And those cells go within the, within, they emerge within the, 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 within the caterpillar and the chrysalis. And the first ones come, and they are destroyed by the rest of the cells. And then they keep coming back, and they keep coming back. These imago cells, they keep returning until there are more and more of them, and then they transform the, the caterpillar into a butterfly.
It is the imago cells that make that change. And I think about that because the word imago, the imago cells, is also the root for the word imagination. And we are the imago cells of this society. And that change is required, and it is made through not only our courage, but our vision and our imagination. That is how change is made. There's not like a social change fairy that will do this one for us. It will be done by the hands of individuals who are committed to making change. And as I said earlier on, my theory is, is that if we could do it, anybody could do it. Because we're not people that have, you know, like a, not a lot going for us, really, in the big spectrum. But we are people that are determined to control our destiny. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage. Today's show is The Next Energy Economy, Grassroots Strategies to Mitigate Global Climate Change and How We Move Ahead, with Native American writer and activist Winona LaDuke. There is a group on the Pine Ridge Reservation called the uh, Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation. And that's a Native organization. And that organization has been working to change the village around Kyle to transform and make a, a, new, a new housing, food, energy vision. And they came out of their sundance ceremonies. Thunder Valley is the sundance that they go to. And I was looking in their annual report. I was looking in their annual report a few years ago. And in their annual report, there was this quote. And this quote kind of like popped out at me. And I said, I call them up and I said, can I use that quote in my writing or in our writing? And uh, Nick Tilson, he answered the phone. He said, yes, auntie, you can use that quote. I've known him since he, before he was born. He said, yes, auntie, you can use that quote, but you gotta, you gotta let me tell you where the quote came from. And so what he said is that there were some young men, some Lakota men, and that they were going to, to, to their sweat lodge ceremony. And a lot of you know what that is. And they're preparing to go to their sweat lodge ceremony, and they were outside, and they're getting ready to go, and they're talking. He said they're kind of talking smack. You know, they're talking about this tribal councilman did this and this guy did that and, you know, geez, you know, nothing was going right. And I have to say that because a lot of people think that Indian people are always sacred. But sometimes we talk smack. <laughs> and so they're going in there for their ceremony and they're getting ready to go and then they got in the lodge and they got in the lodge and he said, what he said is this spirit came into the lodge. That's what he said. He said, a spirit came into our sweat lodge, and he said, this is what the spirit said. This is the quote they had in their annual report. He said, the spirit said this. The spirit said, how long are you going to let others determine the future for your children? Are we not warriors? When our ancestors went into battle, they did not know what the consequences were going to be. All they knew is that if they did nothing, things would not go well for their children. Do not operate out of a place of fear. Operate out of a place of hope. Because with hope, everything is possible. The time is now, the movement is here. And so to me, that is really what this is about. This is moment of onishishin ishichigay. This moment when we remember that we are beautiful. We reaffirm our beauty and we return to a way of life and a practice that reaffirms that. We remember that 
And remember that we are the ones who are here that have the opportunity spiritually to make those changes and to, and to make the renaissance, because that is what I refer to it as. In the dark ages, many centuries ago, many things happened that were so bleak and so dire. And then there came this era of enlightenment. It was called the Renaissance. And that is what we need again, kind of minus the pillaging of the Western Hemisphere that occurred to finance the Renaissance, of course. But what we need is a Renaissance, a time of new thinking and enlightenment. It is not alternative energy, it is enlightened energy. There's not alternative economics, it is enlightened practice. And it is indeed our opportunity to be those people that are in this time of enlightenment and to make to make that which is beautiful. Miigwech, thank you very much for your time. I'm uh, happy to answer some questions. I didn't mention my, did you see my hemp shirt? This is a hemp shirt. I usually have Don model his hemp shirt too, but he has disappeared. Hi, Winona, thank you. Um, I'm over here on your left. Hi. <laughs> um, you may or may not know that there's a proposed liquid natural gas pipeline being proposed in Alaska. I'm wondering what are your thoughts about that? You know, I feel like we have plenty of fossil fuel infrastructure. We, what we need is, is, pipe, is infrastructure for people, not for oil companies. You know, in, in, in the case of my community, we don't want these pipelines. Y'all figure this out. You know, and what I'm trying to figure out is like, I'm not actually opposed to pipe. I'm, it depends on what's in them. Because I'm looking at Flint, Michigan. I was like, those are some people that want some pipe. They should get pipe. You know, and I feel like there are plenty of jobs in rebuilding. This is the United States as a D in infrastructure, as a D in infrastructure. I find that appalling because I signed up to be in a first world country. You're supposed to have an A in infrastructure if you're first world. We have a D in infrastructure and energy infrastructure crumbles and you all know that because you live in a place where energy infrastructure crumbles. And the lower states, gas mains blow up, bridges collapse, you know, so there's no absence of labor that is needed for infrastructure. It's a question of what the infrastructure is, but I, 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 we do not need any more fossil fuel infrastructure. What we need to is clean up a lot of fossil fuel messes. And you know, the other thing is, is that you know, we talked a little bit about the liability that associated with fossil fuel infrastructure projects. But increasingly on a worldwide scale, the divestment movement has moved, you know, has moved rapidly to divest in fossil fuels as they look at the increasing liability. Now, you know, cities like New York and others are suing these major oil companies because New York and other cities, I mean, you have cities and towns that are going underwater here. And these cities are suing these large oil companies for the climate change related disasters that are pending or coming. So no time like the present to move on. That's my feeling. No time. Yes. Yeah. Other question? Yes. Thank you so much for coming today. My name is Paulina Larenas Bashua. Um, I've been in Alaska for the last 10 years, but um, I'm Chilean. I'm from South America. And um, when I hear I have a lot of respect from, pe from people who care about uh, the environment, and not only the environment in their region, but the environment in the world, because that's what we should be doing. And when we talk about electric cars, and you uh, made the example, you used the example of the Tesla and how effective it is versus the regular car that we, most of us use, 
you say there is a 16% towards 64%. The concern I have about that is that electric cars are using um, limited resources. I mean, the battery for an electric car is made of cobalt and lithium. Sure, my country is one of the biggest reserves of lithium in the world, and I hate that because it's not fair, because I know what's going to happen in my country, and I live in South America. And when you choose a president in this country, unfortunately, your president will be running my country, whether I like it or not. And I think this is something that activists like you have to keep in mind when we talk about um, um, limited resources, where those resources are coming when we talk about the effectivity of an electric car, Wait a minute, where is, which environment, which communities, those, uh, that destruction, the removing, the destruction of, this, of those uh, materials will cause and where it's coming from? In this case, for lithium and cobalt, would it be Argentina, Chile, Australia, China? And Argentina and Chile, unfortunately, we will always be the background of the US. So I, what, what do you think about that? are absolutely right. You can't just transfer, you know, the materials economy from a fossil fuel economy to an extreme extraction minerals economy. You know, I, I agree. You know, I use the example of the inefficiencies, but the, the longer term example is far less consumption and far less transportation and far more localization and far, far more use of, you know, energy that, you know, makes sense. Like I was talking this afternoon and, you know, we were sitting in that workshop and I keep thinking about how preposterous the whole energy economy is. You know, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but most of us just sit around most of the time. I don't know how to say it, but that's what's happened. We work so hard to be like labor saving and stuff like that. So we live with the equivalent, they say, of like 100 slaves in our household. Really, we transport everything from someplace else. We don't grow anything. We don't make anything. We don't sow anything. We don't make any, you know what I'm saying? We don't produce anything of our own heat. We just let other people do it for it. We just push the buttons and we act like we're all good. You know, and in the meantime, we wonder how come we all get fat? You know, we under, wonder how come we all get sick? We under, you know, and then we go to the gym, you know, to work off some of that stuff. You know, I always make fun of my tribe because we have a casino and I was like, we should go back to the time we had these slot machines and maybe we could just power the casino <laughs> off of that. Or maybe we could just like, you know, all those gyms here in your city, you could just power your hotels off of the gym. You understand what I'm saying? Is the absurdity of our energy choices. And so we sit around and then we go to the gym. You know, which is obviously not exactly the point that you are bringing up, but the point is actually how much energy we consume and how much energy we, you know, we waste and that we don't need to. And so the, the you know, the, sh the, the shift, and not even the shift, but what we need to do is consume a lot less. And we need to be honest about our consumption. And, you know, I don't want it to sound like it is not a burdensome thing because you and I know you go out there and, you know, there's this whole globalization, but at the same time, there is a huge relocalization movement. And you see that with like the, the local breweries or the local cider, the local cheese makers. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? All the cool local things which are emerging, the farmer's markets. And that's what you need, we need to do, is the relocalization is, is really the answer. And in that, there's far less energy consumption. You know, and so that is kind of the answer unto itself. And I feel like, like, I don't know, you know, I, I raise all these teenage boys 
And I think this winter, I'm, you know, I think I'm done, not with the teenage boys, because they'll never go away from what I can figure. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, because I know, I know how to run the power in my house. So I think I'm going to unhook all their stuff and give them a bicycle to power it. You understand what I'm saying? You know, just bike power that computer. You'll all be like in super good shape. My youngest son, my youngest son a couple of years ago told his girlfriend and some others that I had ruined his childhood because he had to cut wood. <laughs> that was way. He was like, I didn't really have a childhood, I had to cut wood. <laughs> I said, you got that body because your mom made you chop wood, baby. I mean, everybody looks at him, he's all buff. I was like, yep, chopped wood, huh? But you understand my point. It's that we need to be those people that are you know, far more engaged and in, in responsible with our energy. And your point is very well taken. You know, I do not want to transition into, you know, into to some new, it's, it's like, you know, it's like just changing, you know, your opiates. Not a good plan. Time to move on. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans today on KSKA Anchorage. We just heard from Native American writer and activist Winona LaDuke. Her talk was titled, The Next Energy Economy, Grassroots Strategies to Mitigate Global Climate Change and How We Move Ahead. This program was recorded on November 9th in the Wendy Williamson Auditorium at the University of Alaska Anchorage. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.